Well, good afternoon, everyone. I want to thank you all for coming out and to welcome you all to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Tanner, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, but of course, I'm not the person you're really here to see. Uh, we are here, uh, actually, to talk about a new book by Kevin Williamson, The End is Near, and It's Going to be Awesome. Uh, we have Kevin, who will be talking to us a little bit and talking about his book in just a few moments. And then we will have some, uh, some commentary on that from Nick Gillespie of uh, Reason.com and Reason TV, uh, who will have a few things to, to say about it, I'm sure. You know, if you look around right now, you can see, pretty obviously, I think, that the major institutions of the modern welfare state are beginning to show their strains, let's say. Uh, after all, uh, you can look at the fact that we have right now at the federal level 126 separate federal anti-poverty programs at a cost of about $866 billion a year, and yet poverty go rates go up. We spend more every year on education, more federal education programs, more federal education dollars, and test scores go nowhere. We spend more money on Social Security and Medicare as these programs careen towards bankruptcy, and yet Social Security delivers a much lower and declining rate of return to young people, leaving them on the hook for higher taxes or lower benefits in the future. Federal intervention in the health care system from Medicaid to Medicare to Obamacare is leading to higher health care costs, higher insurance premiums, more difficulty in seeing the doctor of your choice. I mean, all you have to do is look the most recent scandals we're suffering right here, the investigation of journalists, the Benghazi debacle, the uh, IRS harassment of conservative groups. And if you take the Obama administration at its word uh, for everything, it's assumed that every official in the administration has been telling the truth all along, you have to come to the conclusion that the CIA, the State Department, the IRS, the Justice Department, and a host of other federal organizations are utterly incompetent. That, uh, that the best news, the good news, is that most of the federal government is incapable of organizing a two-car funeral. But Kevin will actually tell us this is really good news because we're going broke at the same time. I mean, the fact is that uh, this country, we talk about facing a $16.7 trillion national debt right now, uh, which puts us uh, only in slightly better position than countries like Greece and Italy. Uh, I think we have the fourth highest uh, national debt among OECD countries. Uh, but of course, that doesn't even begin to touch the real cost this country is facing when you get into the unfunded liabilities of programs like Social Security and Medicare. In fact, by the most optimistic forecasts, for the, if you include the unfunded liabilities of these programs, we face a real debt of somewhere around 80 trillion, that's trillion with a T dollars, about 500% of GDP, and perhaps as much as 120 or 130 trillion dollars in debt, over 900% of GDP. Uh, even 
just using the regular national debt, of course, we're at 103 percent of GDP, which means we already owe more than the value of all the goods and services produced in this country over the course of a year. I mean, just figure if you, you know, looking at your credit card bills and realizing that they now add up to be more than your entire pre-tax salary. So what we're going to hear today is just how close to the end those facts make us and why they're such good news. So with that, I would like to turn it over, if I can, to Kevin Williamson, uh, who is National Review's roving correspondent. Uh, his Exchequer blog uh, deals with issues like debt, deficits, and the intersection of finance and politics. I also have to say that he is a frequent editor of my own column for National Review Online, uh, which means whenever I am insufficiently snarky, I can expect him to add additional snark to my columns, uh, which is something badly in need uh, today in political punditry. Uh, he has a long and distinguished journalism career. He actually started at the Bombay-based Indian Express newspaper group. Uh, he's 15 years in the newspaper business in Texas, Pennsylvania, Colorado. Uh, he's an old-fashioned newspaper man. And uh, we're thrilled to have him here. Uh, you see him regularly on lots of television shows. Uh, he's one of the talking heads now that we no longer write newspapers. I guess that's the new way to do this. At any rate, uh, his book is The End is Near, and it's going to be awesome. And we're delighted to have you, Kevin. Thanks, Mike. Please. You know, by old-fashioned newspaper man, he means that every newspaper I've ever worked for has been through bankruptcy. Uh, <laughs> but none of them during the time I was there. Uh, so it was nice I was able to to avoid that. Thank you all for coming out today. Uh, I appreciate it. I know there are uh, lots of other things to do with your time and your uh, afternoons than hear about the inevitabilities of uh, politics. You know, as I get started, I know it's John Elliott's here, and I should probably go ahead and blame John uh, for this book. I was speaking at an IHS event a few years back. And I just had a sort of offhand remark at the end that um, when libertarians are asked difficult questions about social challenges, things like poverty, things like education, things like what do we do about people who are disabled and just simply can't take care of themselves, we always say, well, charity will take care of it, the free market will take care of it. And those are kind of our two answers to everything, as though those were really answers to a question. They're, they're not. And John said, well, that's really what you need to write a book about then, isn't it, what we actually go about doing. So this book in attempt was, uh, was in part an attempt to answer, answer John's challenge there, and I will leave it to you all to uh, decide whether that's been sufficient or not. So uh, I make the number around 140 trillion, really. When I look at uh, the situation, I also include the uh, state and local debt and state and local unfunded liabilities as kind of the uh, aggregate national fiscal overhang, which if you wonder why we always lose the political debate, it's because we use phrases like national aggregate fiscal overhang, uh, which, which nobody gets. But, um, and most of it's not in the form of explicit debt, of course. We've got bonds at the state and local level and at the national level. They're going to have to be paid off one of these days, but it's mostly the liabilities associated with the entitlements and also at the state and local level with uh, pensions for uh, state employees, which turn out to be a huge, huge 
uh, liability that most people don't think about too much, running currently something around between three and four trillion dollars in obligations for the states and cities that they have no possible way to pay or even think about paying. I saw an estimate that in 15 years, I want to say the state of Illinois' uh, pensions alone will exceed all of their expected tax revenue. So if they close down the schools, fire all the police, uh, let the highways fall apart, uh, get rid of the zoning department, which would be great, and uh, don't do anything but try to pay their pensions, they still won't be able to pay their bills. Pardon me? Uh, I want to say it was 15 years hence, but that might have been two years ago I wrote that, so uh, sometimes you forget. But we're not talking about things, you know, 50 years down the road or 60 years down the road. Of course, in California, you've already got city after city going bankrupt. Uh, I happened to be at the uh, city council meeting in San Bernardino when they declared bankruptcy. And if you'd been there, you'd never be so happy to see a group of people go bankrupt. They were just the worst body of elected officials I've ever seen anywhere. Uh, and, you know, that is a guy who's spent time in Pakistan. They're just, uh, they're terrible. But in the end, as, I, as I'm arguing in the book, I think this is an opportunity for us. Um, I hate to take the, you know, sort of Rahm Emanuel approach, never let a good crisis go to waste. But if you've got one coming, it pays to be prepared for it. Um, I've spoken a lot about how we go about solving social problems to student groups and young people. And I was a teacher, professor for a while. And the sort of abstract economic arguments uh, puzzle them, partly because they don't take economics anymore. And if they do take economics, they get taught uh, advanced applied math rather than, uh, than economics, which is a sort of different subject. But there are things that they understand. There are things that people understand. One of the visual aids I always like to use in the sort of recurring motif in my book is, uh, you all remember this Oliver Stone movie, Wall Street, I'm sure, and the character of Gordon Gecko, who gets sort of hung around our necks, you know, greed is good, poster boy for capitalism. But what I like is that famous poster of him using the Motorola cell phone from 1984. Uh, because I am a nerd, I have an interest in the history of technology and, and cell phones and such. Uh, this is the 40th anniversary, by the way, this year, the first cell phone call. Uh, it's been a mixed blessing, obviously, in some ways. But, um, you know, that Motorola brick he had cost almost $10,000 in uh, 2013 dollars. Uh, it cost nearly $1,000 a month to operate. Had something like 42 minutes of talk time, uh, a couple hours of standby. Couldn't play Angry Birds on it. Uh, or, you know, trade a stock or check your email or send a text message or anything else. You had to be Gordon Gecko to own one. They were expensive. Uh, in fact, the very first time one ever appeared in an American movie, I want to say it was in 16 Candles, and it's in a Rolls Royce. You know, it's the car phone in a Rolls Royce, because that's where they were. And now you talk to, uh, you know, college students, you talk to people who are not Gordon Gecko, who are not millionaires, and everyone has this in his pocket. Uh, you know, there's a lady who runs a coffee shop down the street from my office in New York. Uh, she's an immigrant from Bangladesh, and she has the same cell phone the President of the United States does. Uh, it's an amazingly egalitarian outcome. But you can bet, you can bet everything that her kids don't go to schools that are as good as where the President or someone like that sends their kids to school. Her retirement certainly won't be as good. Uh, her health care certainly won't be as good. 
uh, lease and healthcare financing and access. So we've got this weird situation. Um, who was it over at the New York Times? I always forget. Was it Friedman, his uh, Jetsons and Flintstones thing? Uh, one of those goofy things you, one of those ideas you come up with, you write a book, you write a column, but it's actually kind of a useful idea where you've got essentially two very separate economies and two very different kinds of economies. In one of them, everything gets better and cheaper and better and cheaper. And in the other one, they don't. Uh, we've got three really important sectors of the economy that are largely dominated by politics. Those are education, uh, which is almost entirely the local monopolies. Uh, 91, 92% of students go to uh, public schools. You've got healthcare, which even before uh, the ACA was 50% government spending. It was a sort of half socialized system before we got around to uh, making it a worse three quarter socialized system. And then you've got uh, pensions, which is dominated by Social Security, of course. Medicare is, is sort of a piece of that if you look at retirement more broadly. And you've got a system into which people are paying 12.5% of their income for their entire lives and getting uh, something out of it that is not at all related to uh, what they put into it. One of the worst debates we ever lost is this idea that Social Security is some sort of investment. Uh, this country is full of people who believe that there is a fund somewhere into which their Social Security taxes go. And it's supposed to be there waiting for them. And it was one of the great frauds ever perpetrated uh, on the American people. And you try to explain to them that the Social Security Trust Fund is just sort of a figure of speech. Uh, you know, it's an accounting fiction. And you can tell them 100 times, you can tell them 1,000 times, you can tell them 100,000 times. And it's really hard to get people to appreciate that. Uh, that it just isn't there. It's just sort of a thing that was made up. So we end up with this situation in which we've got three really important parts of the economy and some other important ones too, but these are the three that really leap out that are dominated by systems that don't work. And there's a tendency among those of us who write about politics and yell about people about politics all the time to read all this through the, you know, sort of familiar ideological filters. And I wanted to try to take the argument to a little bit beyond, uh, well, markets work and government bureaucracies don't, and that's the end of the discussion. Because I think there's a bit more to be said to it uh, about it than that. Because the question of why markets work is something that is not, I think, always particularly well understood. Uh, most people think it's largely about profits and incentives, but I don't think that really tells the whole story. Uh, and of course, being in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, uh, there have certainly been more sophisticated versions of this argument made than mine, one of them by F.A. Hayek, but uh, not everyone's going to, be, going to be reading that. So we have a problem that is related to uh, something Hayek and Mises both got into, which is the problem of complexity. Uh, I started off uh, the book with a uh, sort of retelling of Leonard Reed's great uh, essay, I Pencil, which is one of my favorite things. I read it when I was a kid, and it sort of always stuck with me. You've got a process, not only in the marketplace, but also in the nonprofit sector of things like Wikipedia, things like Kickstarter, where you've got lots and lots of people working on problems from lots of different angles, everyone making small improvements, things that add up in the aggregate over a long period of time to real dramatic improvements from the Motorola brick to the uh, iPhone from $10,000 to we'll give you one for free if you'll sign up with our service. Uh, iPhones aren't free yet though, are they? They're maybe a couple of hundred bucks still. Are they free now? Get a four for free. Well, who wants a four? No one, no one used, that's so six months ago. 
Um, but obviously the schools aren't improving at the same rate. They're not getting better and better every year and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, we're now spending about twice in real dollars per capita what we spent on education 30 years ago. You may have noticed that we're not getting twice the results. Uh, we'd be lucky in most places if we were even getting the same results we were 30 years ago. Uh, healthcare is one of those weird things where you've got a system of paying for things that's very disconnected from the market itself. So we've got really incredible uh, things in the marketplace. You know, stents, simple little thing, stent. It's basically a straw with medicine implanted in it. But for a lot of people, it's made open heart surgery an unnecessary thing. You know, it used to be something wrong with your heart. They had to saw you open, break open your ribs, and do open heart surgery. It was crazy. Uh, now we have outpatient procedures, stent, you're in, you're out. Uh, but your system of paying for that is, of course, what do you think, 19th century? Uh, maybe early 20th century? And it shows up throughout the uh, marketplace. You know, one of my, uh, one of the things that drives me crazy in life, I should one of these days just write a long essay about this, but if you go into a doctor's office, even if they hand you a clipboard and they ask you medical questions and you fill it out, a pen and paper for your medical records? Now, if you owe them money, they use the credit reporting system, which is an enormously sophisticated piece of information technology that can find you anywhere in the world and discover exactly how much money you owe to whom and for how long and under what terms. When it comes to your actual health records, it's, well, tell me if you're allergic to anything, tell me if you're this, tell me if you're that. You know, it's, uh, we're using technology that you know, Isaac Newton had. Uh, we're just one step up from a quill. Uh, it's crazy. And this is, of course, what happens when you have a marketplace in which uh, there's no need for consumers and producers to negotiate with one another, uh, where everyone's interests are adverse to everyone else's, and there's no of that you know, sort of iterative, repeated relationships that make life so much easier everywhere else. So the thing about where we are with the money end of the situation is simply that these obligations are never going to be met. They're not. Uh, we've got, you know, again, by my count, something like $140 trillion dollars of liabilities and zero dollars to pay for them. And if you ever tried to talk to people about the national debt and things related to it, you know, when you say trillion, people just kind of go, hey, numbers all sound alike at a certain point. I was an English major, so anything above like 16, you know, I've got to, I've got to check twice. So, you know, 100 billion, 100 trillion, it sounds the same. You know, I was just over at the House speaking to a couple of members of Congress and, uh, they at some level know the difference between 100 billion and 100 trillion, although you wouldn't necessarily know it to uh, see how they operate. But so to give you a scale of that, you know, 140 trillion dollars is just about two times the GDP of the planet. It is approaching the value of all the financial assets in existence in the world. Uh, all the money in all the bank accounts, all the stocks and bonds, everything doesn't add up to that. And the thing to keep in mind, of course, is that we're not the only country with liabilities. So you've got other countries with similar sorts of liabilities, everyone going into the same marketplace, looking to take this limited pool of capital and finance obligations that are a multiple of it. I don't know what the global number adds up to of government overhangs, but you'd have to use scientific notation and get someone like Mike to explain it to me. But it's going to be, it's going to be huge. So there's just a 0.0% possibility that things like Social Security and Medicare are ever going to be paid out at anything like their present value. 
Now there's, of course, inflationary ways to do that. There's deficits you can do for a while. I actually um, am cautiously optimistic about what the process looks like by which we unwind this. Uh, if I had to guess, I would guess that what happens is eventually interest rates do start to go back up. Uh, if they go back to their historical average, that's a Pentagon-sized hole in the federal budget. And at that point, people have to start making really difficult decisions about what's going to get financed and what's not. And if you're in the House, you're in the Senate, the question you're asking yourself is, in 20 years, which howling mob do I want to face? Do I want to face the people who are expecting Social Security checks or the people who own bonds and are expecting to get paid back? And Social Security is going to lose. Uh, don't bet on grandma in this particular showdown because the worst thing to ever happen to Congress would be for them to lose their ability to borrow money because politics on a pay-as-you-go basis is just not very much fun. You know, if you can't run deficits, if you can't uh, give people something apparently for nothing, it becomes a really, really hard game. So I think that a default on the actual debt of the country is a very unlikely outcome. Uh, we are not economically very much like Argentina or Greece or any of those places. But reform to the point of unrecognizability of the entitlement state, I think, is a uh, very likely outcome. I hate to sound like a uh, Marxist, but uh, almost uh, historically inevitable, uh, I would say. I am sort of a Marxist libertarian in a sense, I suppose. Um, the problem for us then, and by us I mean those of us who are you know, thinking about these issues, who share certain sets of values, and who want to address real social problems in a way that's actually productive and fruitful and does the things we want to do, is that we have to be ready with, if not specific programmatic solutions, here's how we want to take care of education, here's how we want to take care of healthcare, at least with um, some sets of intellectual guiding principles that allow those solutions to develop. I mean, one of the problems we run into, we always run into this rhetorically as libertarians, is we say, oh, we hate Social Security, we hate Medicare, we hate this. Well, fine, what do you want to do? And the problem is that answering that question is part of the problem. The idea that there is a model of education or a model of financing health care or a model of what to do about people's retirements is an enormous part of the problem because there is no one answer to any of this any more than there's one company that makes cell phones or one company that makes cars or one person editing Wikipedia. It just doesn't make any sense. So our argument going forward, I think, needs to be not so much about specific programmatic outcomes, which will uh, develop over time in various ways as different people contribute to it, but um, what sort of political and economic environment will allow these things to emerge. Uh, one of those, of course, is what in political science they call exit, which is giving people the opportunity to leave certain programs behind and experiment for themselves. And uh, and uh, moving from a sort of cash flow-based system of dealing with the poor to an asset-based system, where you're actually making real investments on behalf of people who are going to need it. I think rhetorically we've often allowed ourselves to uh, be led astray by this cartoon of what capitalism is, this sort of law of the jungle, competition is everything, every man for himself uh, kind of way of looking at the world. I think that's sort of backward, and I think it is actually not a real reflection of our values. I think we should come out and um, be talking about 
the sense that we have a positive obligation to do people, to do things for people who can't do things for themselves. I think that's a real thing as human beings. There are going to be people who are children. We don't expect children to be responsible for themselves. There are going to be people who are 85 and can no longer do things for themselves. There are going to be people who are disabled. Uh, and there are going to be people who are just unlucky. And we are not the sort of society that's going to let people starve to death in the streets or not have health care or not be educated. We're going to go out and do that. We're going to solve those problems. We're going to address those problems. But I think we as, as libertarians should probably be a little more vocal about the fact that we think these are problems and we want to solve them. Uh, that we do think poverty is a problem. We do think that these various other things are problems. Not only we have solutions, but we have solutions that actually have a pretty good chance of working. I mean, the great indictment of the welfare state isn't that it costs a lot of money, because what's money, right? But, um, but it doesn't actually do the thing it's supposed to do. Uh, poverty rates are slightly higher right now than they were before we launched the famous war on poverty, at a point at which we've spent $600,000 for every household that's been in poverty since then since the Johnson administration. We could have written everyone a check for half a million dollars, every family that's been poor during that time, and still be financially better off. And they wouldn't actually be poor anymore. Uh, well, some of them probably would. I mean, you know, if you'd given me $500,000 when I was 18, <laughs> I'd be broke. And uh, I'd be, be worse off than I am. So I think that uh, we should not cede to the other side, the idea that we view these not only as obligations, but as, as positive obligations on us as individuals. So we really do have a responsibility to human beings to go out there and try to take care of things uh, in a way that's actually going to ameliorate the sort of things we want to ameliorate. I'm, as I said, cautiously optimistic about this because I think election results notwithstanding, Americans are not stupid. Uh, they're stupid when they're voters. You know, the American voters are stupid, but Americans everywhere else, you're actually fairly smart people. Uh, we don't want to be poor. We don't want to be miserable. We understand that what we're doing and have been doing for the last 40, 50, 60 years doesn't actually work, doesn't actually solve the problems, is immiserating the country. And if left unchecked, will lead us to some sort of economic crisis. And we look around and say, what's the worst case scenario? Well, is it like Argentina, or is it like Greece, or is it like Cyprus? Well, the truth is our worst case scenario is something that's not precedented in world history because you've never seen an economic crisis like that in a country that accounts for one-fifth to one-fourth of the world's economic output. No one's ever seen anything like that. No one knows what it'll look like. And it's the sort of thing you probably don't really want to discover. Um, it's not gonna, be, not gonna be happy if we let things get to that point. I still sort of don't think that they will, but I think that as the financial crisis uh, pressure builds on Washington, they will do the right thing once they've exhausted every other option. And so the good news is that they really are running out of, out of options, and it's up to us to be there with some, some better ones to put on the table. So with that, I will uh, bring Nick into the conversation. They have put this between us yeah. to keep Nick and I from, you know, having too uh, spirited a debate. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, and uh, do want to ha invite Nick Gillespie. Uh, we actually asked him here on an affirmative action program for hair. Okay. Uh, <laughs> as part of this, uh, to, to come up and have a few remarks. Nick uh, is the editor-in-chief with Reason.com, Reason TV, after spending years as editor-in-chief of Reason uh, Magazine, another person moving uh, away from the, the old sort of old-fashioned print. Uh, I'm not sure what that means in terms of our, our future. 
Uh, you've seen him on TV. He's, he's pretty much ubiquitous. Uh, he's also in all the major print uh, media, writing columns and what have you, so we do see a lot of him. Uh, he's one of the old-time hands in the libertarian vineyards, uh, been laboring for a long time. Uh, that may give him his own uh, sort of unique perspective on this. So, so Nick? Thank you. I, uh... I uh, kind of uh, shy away from the emphasis you were putting on old hand, but, yeah, <laughs> such as it is. Uh, yeah, I am actually celebrating my 20th year in October with reason. I thought that was going to be like a, about a year and a half job, and uh, so time has changed. I want to uh, thank everybody for coming, and a couple people in particular. Uh, I mean, Cato, of course, for hosting this. But uh, Michael, I have—it's a real pleasure to be on a panel with you. I've used your work, uh, you know, through the years to uh, to my advantage, and I hope to public discourse's advantage. Uh, I think it was uh, Michael's work actually that made me fully understand how bad a deal Social Security was for anybody under the age of about seventy, uh, <laughs> you know, and it keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, and I also want to thank Kevin uh, for inviting me to uh, discuss his books. I told him uh, his book. I'm a big fan of his work, and I think this is a really important book that he's written. Uh, and I'm going to pick some, uh, you know, pick some uh, nits with it so that we can have a discussion and whatnot. But I don't want that to get in the way that I, uh, you know, when I was reading this book, um, it came. It started coming back to me when I became the editor in chief of Reason. I was trying out different lines to talk about. Okay, what's a new libertarianism that will, you know, move the ball forward? Will change things. And I had come, because I'm obsessed uh, somewhat with Cold War history and, uh, you know, uh, the leader of Czechoslovakia in the 1960s, uh, I guess it was Alexander Dubček, said, you know, I'm going to present socialism with a human face. And obviously that didn't work out very well. It ended with a bunch of Soviet tanks parking in Prague. Uh, but I was like, well, you know what, I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to show capitalism with a human face. Uh, that's what libertarianism really is all about. That didn't go over too well, but I was thinking a lot about that during uh, reading Kevin's book because it, it's a great way of talking about capitalism. He's right. He gets it. Uh, he gets to the value proposition that a, a system of voluntary mutual consent, uh, innovation, change, and whatnot actually increases everybody's uh, kind of life chances and makes everybody better off, and that that's a really positive, powerful message that we often get lost in, especially in D.C., when we start talking about politics, policies, and uh, worst of all, parties. So I want to uh, thank Kevin for having me here. And then the other thing is I know there's a bunch of people here from IHS, which Kevin worked at for a long time and was kind enough to have me on a bunch of uh, programs and seminars that they did, and there are other IHS people here. Uh, IHS is a hugely important uh, institution within the freedom movement, just as uh, Cato is and Reason and a variety of other places. I see people from CEI and elsewhere. Uh, but IHS personally helped me finish my grad school, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, I have very warm feelings for that group, which is in its 50th plus year. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to be here. Um, let me, uh, you know, start off uh, turning specifically to the book. You know, Kevin's two main points, I think, are both inarguable and totally convincing. And they are, you know, first, that our current form of governments and politics is, is simply unsustainable and it's unstable. And, you know, that's a good thing. We're definitely going broke. Uh, you hear, you know, people at the New York Times, or most of them, you hear people like Paul Krugman talking about this on, in The Nation, uh, you know, you name it, you know, that we're not going broke. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that we are going broke, you know, in a, in a very clear, unambiguous way, or at the very least, we're going to be facing such tight constraints going forward on government business that things have to change. You know, 
we are we ran out of Thatcher, I guess, you know, a couple months ago. She was famous for saying, you know, when you run out of people's money, you know, things change. And that's the problem with socialism. Uh, you know, just a very concrete example, talking about Social Security, uh, and I'll have more to say about that later. But absent major changes to the tax rates that are charged um, or, or to benefit cuts, Social Security surplus trust fund will be totally exhausted by 2033. And that, that's what they say now. It'll, it'll get closer to us as time goes on. And that'll mean a, an immediate cut of at least 25% in retirement benefits. Um, similar issues are there for Medicare and all of the other major things with exhaustion dates that are closer to us. Uh, so the, you know, and then all of this is predicated upon a fiction in D.C. and in budgeting circles that you know, interest rates that are effectively zero or in the 1% or 2% range for government money are going to stay that way for a while. We're, you know, we're in Brigadoon here. I mean, we are living a, a fantasy world that this bubble is going to pop pretty soon. So the minute that uh, the cost of borrowing money for the government goes up, and it will eventually, then you know, it, all of this will happen much more quickly. But you know, the, the thing that's, so we're, we're definitely going broke, um, uh, and that's a good thing. I mean, that's the, the, kind of the second half of the book, you know, that it's, it's going to be awesome. And I think he's right, because in these kinds of moments, many things can happen. Second, you know, he's correct, and he's, he's, he's appealing and optimistic, I think, in, in a correct way, that the end of business as usual is, you know, it's going to be bad news for a lot of people. It's going to be bad news for politicians and for cronies. Uh, and it's going to be uh, bad news, especially for people who are dependent on the government. And one of the things that's interesting about his book is that it's not the usual suspects. And he also, you know, uh, his previous uh, broadside for Encounter books, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's the, uh, dependency dependency the, the Dependency Agenda, is brilliant on this point. The real people who are dependent on government, it's not poor people. Uh, that are the problem. It's middle class and upper middle class people. And, you know, we live in a society where about 49% of Americans live in a household that gets a direct payment from the government. That is, an you know, it, which helps explain both why the nation is going broke. We're paying money to everybody one way or the other, and also why large numbers of people are so resistant to change. And change will come because that money, that pipeline is, is going to run dry pretty soon. But his point is that what's bad for the ruling class and for the kind of, you know, uh, sponging uh, class, uh, he doesn't use those terms, you know, can be great for the rest of us. Uh, we're the serfs who are going to be set free when suddenly, you know, the revolution comes, and it's going to be a financial revolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he makes a compelling case that uh, the, the world that we can create in the midst of this chaos will be ultimately predicated upon things like choice, consent, and voluntary exchange. He uses all sorts of compelling examples from the commercial world as well as the social world, you know, things like religious institutions and benevolent societies and whatnot from history, as well as things that are going up now, to offer a vision of a better world. And you know, he said it in your, in your original comments, you know, why, is, why are our phones getting better and better and cheaper and cheaper and then the things that the government controls are going wrong. It's not an accident, and it's not going to change anytime soon because government functions by radically different rules, which include force and coercion first and foremost. Um, so far, so good. Okay, yeah, I'm in total uh, agreement. And now I want to switch. I, I have a uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot joke here, which I don't suspect is going to go over well. But, and as Sir Mix-a-Lot once put it, I like big butts. I want, I want to raise some objections here. Okay. 
Um, you know, and the first is, at one point, Kevin asserts, because, and again, this is a richly textured book that is about human life as we live it, and then, you know, how government is a totally different beast. And, you know, education, healthcare, pensions. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the book that Matt Welch and I co-authored a couple of years ago, which is available in paperback, uh, The Declaration of Independence. And we uh, come to similar uh, focus on education, healthcare, and pensions. These are the places where life is not getting better, even though we're spending more and more money. In most places, we're spending less money and getting more stuff. The reverse is happening because of the government. Uh, you also do great work by uh, uh, citing Arnold Kling, who's an adjunct scholar at Cato, works uh, also with Mercatus and whatnot. He's written a series of great books that focus on these issues. Uh, you know, this is, this is just the way that it is. Government is, is screwing things up. But um, Kevin at one point asserts that, um, uh, that politics, that not only is politics is violence, but that the Department of Education's bureaucrats and other federal officers are gangsters, and you actually use those terms. Now, I want to think. I, I want us to pause on that because, you know, there's a lot to agree with that in such an assertion, and it's certainly it's it's a great laugh line. Uh, 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 Kevin quotes the uh, famous scene from The Godfather. It's both in the novel and the movie in which Michael Corleone, the scion of you know the the major mafia family, tells his white bread idealistic wife, who I think is like a kindergarten teacher or something, and she's a stand-in for non-ethnic America that's kind of stupid and deluded because they've never been uh, abused by government forces. Um, you know, uh, where she says, you know, come on, uh, you know, the senators and presidents and politicians don't kill people. And he's like, come on, Kate, who's being naive now? Uh, and this is the vision of government that is undergirding a lot of Kevin's uh, argument, that politics is violence. Now, without blinding ourselves uh, to the realities of tyrannical government, uh, tyrannical government actions that Reason exposes every day at our website, in our magazine, and via our videos, which are all online at Reason.com, and you can subscribe to the magazine there as well. But, and, uh, you know, Cato uh, does in its policy work, exposes this stuff. National Review does uh, exemplary work in this. Do we really deep down believe that? Do we believe that government is violence, and that's it? Because if that's true, um, you know, what I want to argue is, you know, or let me put it this way. Coming from the most radical kind of Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist that Cato may have hidden in the basement or buried in the, the foundation of this beautiful new building, or you know, a, 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 an extreme anarcho-capitalist who's writing at Reason, that's, you know, that would be a, a strong statement. Coming from somebody working at National Review, is, that's a really, really bold statement, I think. And the only other statement in the book that comes close to uh, equaling that is that Kevin defends uh, kind of in passing, or he celebrates Led Zeppelin uh, throughout the book, in particular the song Stairway to Heaven. And I, I was puzzling over that because, you know, it's, it's a known fact that, uh, you know, at least three of the four members of Led Zeppelin signed a, uh, a deal with the devil. Um, so they committed their souls to uh, Satan, but uh, more importantly, Bill Buckley, uh, the founder of National Review, hated the Beatles. He called them unconscionably awful, irredeemably terrible. And now we have a National Review writer actually talking about Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven, which uh, listen to it backwards and you will be going to hell. So, I just, you know, but uh, that's uh, to the side. Um, you know, do we really believe that all government is illegitimate ultimately because it's predicated or the, the world we live in is predicated on violence? In the end, men with guns come and take things away. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily disagree, uh, 
disagreeing with that. But if that is the starting point, are we all just cowards then that we're not in open revolt? Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Walter. Um, so that's my uh, first point of, of question of the book. If politics is violence, then what sort of government is actually possible? And to his credit, Kevin does go to discuss this a bit in, in the last couple of chapters, which are particularly worth reading. But isn't even a night watchman state, and, and Kevin does invoke Robert Nozick at least at one point, illegitimate and then thus worthy of rebellion? Now, the second point that I want to raise is this. Uh, Kevin notes that our vision of politics, that one of the reasons why we have the world we live in is because we're still trapped in a kind of Hobbesian nightmare scenario where there are only two possible solutions to you know, what goes on in the world. And on the one hand, you know, there's a Hobbesian state of nature. It's a war of all against all. And you know, it's just chaos, and people are killing each other. Or there's Leviathan. That's what Hobbes proposed as a kind of alternative to it, uh, you know, which is where the state, the leader, is the embodiment. Uh, we, we, we all form. The, the body politic literally, and we're, you know, the, the king or the ruler is absolute and he's our head, and we have to follow his rules or else that's it. The state owned, owns us and directs us what to do. And he's right in saying that, you know, part of what he's trying to do in the book, I think, anyway, is to replace that kind of reductive dyad. These are your two options, you know, and you can call them Republican and Democrat or whatever, but it's an, an incredibly constrained vision of human society, and he's trying to replace that. Um, but, um, you know, and he wants to replace that with a new model of negotiation and voluntary consent. I think it's great. Uh, his emphasis on the right of exit uh, throughout the book. I was uh, just reading, there's a brilliant essay uh, uh, up at Arts and Letters Daily. I forget where it actually appeared originally about Albert Hirschman, the uh, economist who died not too long ago, wrote a book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. You know, the right of exit is by far and away the most important right that we have. I think it pre-exists even things like uh, freedom of expression or freedom of religion or, or freedom of assembly and things like that. And I, I think it's great that you focus on that. Um, and, you know, and this is, he's trying to replace a Hobbesian view of you're either part of Leviathan and you have to, you know, do your part or get killed, or you're in a war of all against all with this uh, model of negotiation and voluntary consent. But if that's so, and now I want to ask him in his... Uh, comments to comment on his recent theater-going escapade, uh, which has made a lot of headlines. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but uh, Kevin wrote it up at National Review while attending a play recently in New York City. Uh, he was bothered by a theater-goer uh, who wouldn't stop using her cell phone in a disruptive manner in a play. Uh, and I, uh, just as a side note, I, uh, a couple of weeks ago I saw um, Alan Cummings in... Uh, in uh, Macbeth on Broadway, uh, it's a one-man show. Which, and I'm warning you, it's I didn't know that going in. Uh, and I have you seen Terrific. it? Or, yeah, I, like I, I found it uh, terrible, to be quite honest. But uh, there were people all around me, and I have to admit that I I don't have full knowledge of my time spent. We were all falling asleep, and I don't know if we would have you know engendered your rage at that. Uh, it was a, a rite of exit, kind of, you know, at least for about 15 minutes or so. So, uh, but. Uh, so this woman is using her cell phone in a disruptive manner and acting on it. We've all been in these kinds of situations. I can even see Ivan Osorio has been sending me secret hand signals and being very disruptive through this over there. Um, but he asked his companion to talk to the manager, management, or, the, or his companion went to the management, and tell me if I'm getting the main facts wrong. And the management basically didn't do anything, so it continued, at which point Kevin, by his own account, grabbed the audience member's phone and chucked it across the room and apparently breaking it, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. For this action, now this is what's interesting, uh, and I see clapping. Uh, for this action, he was lauded as a hero. You, you, that word by conservative writer Rod Dreher, uh, who even offered to pay his court costs. I'd hold him to that if, that, if it comes to that. And by Slate's Dave Weigel and a couple of other people. And the, the reason I bring this up is in this context of, you know, okay, is government always force? What are the rules that we live by? What, what's an alternative vision of a society that is not top-down, coercively based? Uh, what kind of world do we live in? What is Kevin's rights-based argument for such an action, and how does it bear on your book's arguments? Uh, your book turns on an invocation of non-aggression and mutual consent. That's the alternative to a kind of Leviathan state, which we effectively are living in or moving more and more towards. Personally, I can't imagine a scenario under which Kevin had the right to physically accost or take the property of somebody else in that context or destroy the property. Um, you know, it seems to me that your beef is really with the, man with the theater management and that the right move is your right of exit and getting a refund because they failed to deliver on their implied contract that you'd be able to watch the damn play, which you said was very good and you recommend it. Um, but doesn't his, actually, doesn't his action there actually provoke exactly the sort of Hobbesian scenario or reinscribe it that his book seeks to replace? Uh, that we either have absolute law or absolute chaos. Uh, which leads me to a final point, and then I'll end. As I noted before, I think Kevin is broadly and completely right and very appealingly right in his book, uh, which is not only a stimulating essay, but also a stylistic tour de force. I, you know, it's, uh, you know, all of us who read on a regular basis, and especially for a living, it's like, geez, you know, when you, you get a book and you want to read it, and then it's like turns into, uh, you know, liner notes from Bob Dylan or uh, <laughs> The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, you know, by Genesis. You're like, where are the needles that I can put in my eyes? Uh, this is a really well-written book, and it's a very stimulating and provocative book. And I urge you, if you don't read it, at least buy a copy. It's, it's worth it. <laughs> um, but what are the ways in which change occurs beyond bankruptcy? Uh, so, you know, you know the, the money runs dry and everything like that. What is the message, or what is your message actually specifically to conservative readers? And, and it's not that you're a conservative or that, you know, whatever, but like to national review readers, to people who consider themselves Republicans and conservatives um, in this sense, because it seems like that's who the book is kind of speaking to. Uh, because it seems to me that many conservatives, like liberals, share an absolute fear of unstructured, unplanned, unregulated human, human interaction. Libertarians, by and large, don't. I mean, I think we understand, you know, spontaneous order, you know, extended order, blah, 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 all of that kind of stuff. And we live it, you know, and we, we dig it. We get the phone uh, analogies and things like that. But actually, conservatives and, and right-wingers in general don't. They're, they're afraid of Mexicans crossing the border. They're afraid of gays infecting our you know, schools and Boy Scouts and all of this type of stuff. And when it comes to the major drivers of debt, and I'll end with this, you know, which are defense spending, uh, Medicare and Social Security, that not only spend and waste a lot of money, but actually do destroy capital for the poorest among us. I mean, Social Security is not just a, uh, an inefficient program. It's totally immoral and unethical in my part, on, on my part. But it's, it's conservatives who, you know, get, you know, they start wetting their pants when you say, hey, you know what, let's cut defense spending to that which is necessary to actually protect the borders of the country as opposed to screw up every country that we can land a plane in. Uh, you know, they're the ones, uh, the AEI, 
went ballistic. I mean, a guy uh, who used to work at Cato, who's a great scholar, Andrew Biggs, he was all hot and bothered about Obama suggesting a chain CPI for future Social Security benefits. You, you got to be kidding me. That's a no-brainer if, if you're going to stay within the constructs of that. And Medicare, the last time I checked, the Republican Party and its presidential candidate was running on a platform to say, you know, he was against Obamacare because he was going to make sure nothing changed in Medicare. Medicare is the problem. Obamacare will be the problem in about six months or six years or whenever they get around to actually rolling out the first exchange. But Medicare is the problem now. And so, you know, how, are, how, do, you, how do you teach this gospel of bottom-up, happy, libertarian creativity and all of that to conservatives? And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Kevin, if, if you'd like to take uh, take five minutes or so and respond to all the, all those points, if you talk real fast, uh, and then we'll take some other questions. You know, I knew I wasn't going to get out of here without talking about that damn cell phone. Uh, you know what I'd been reading just before that uh, was Ellickson's uh, great essay on uh, Coase and Cattle. And I don't know if you all have, uh, read this essay, but, um, you know, Coase does a little thought experiment in one of his uh, essays about potential uh, property conflicts between ranchers and uh, farmers. You know, when cattle tend to wander around, stomp on people's crops and things like that. And his idea was that if you had, you know, relatively low transaction costs and people could actually solve these disputes themselves and that property rights would uh, essentially be respected and distributed in a way that made sense, uh, even if people were acting outside the law. Um, and then Ellickson, years later, went to Shasta County, California, and actually found out how people did it. And there's this really interesting essay he wrote. Yeah. Um, people almost never sue each other there. There are lots of property damage, uh, but people are able to solve these uh, disputes themselves. And sometimes they do it by breaking the law. Uh, for instance, if someone's you know, animal wanders onto your land once, maybe you take it back to the owner, and he generally will make good for any damage it's done to your fence or whatnot. But if it happens a couple of times or the guy doesn't really keep up his end, you know, they kill it. <laughs> Or they, you know, do some discrete property damage. So I think I was doing, I was doing an Ellickson experiment in the theater there. <laughs> uh, so we think of the theater management as the government, and, uh, and me as a libertarian, maybe we were uh, not asking permission to solve our own problems, right. which is kind of where I'd like to go. Uh, in terms of conservatives and uh, Republicans specifically, uh, one of the things that I try to emphasize at National Review and try to uh, keep foremost on everyone's mind is that there is a key and critical and important difference between the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Um, you know, I, I used to be a Republican, uh, and I left the party around, wasn't that long ago, it was maybe 2003 or something like that, over the issue of spending primarily. Uh, if you remember what happened the last time we had a unified Republican <laughs> government with, you know, Bush, DeLay, and uh, Hastert and those characters, it was not exactly the outcome that uh, fiscal conservatives were, were hoping for. I think that the unfortunate fact is that with the uh, exception of a few really philosophically driven office holders in relatively safe seats, that there is really very little hope uh, for getting a Republican Party that will behave any differently than anyone else in Congress will, because their incentives are the same and people are going to respond to incentives. Uh, they're going to follow their own self-interest, as we all 
you know from having read our public choice books. It's kind of weird where I am politically because I am really very conservative, uh, including being very socially conservative. You know, my views are uh, about what you would expect. I have some questions about how much of that we can make, say, politically actionable. Uh, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is uh, we've been in this debate about marriage in the conservative movement and uh, the question of whether we should extend uh, certain legal marriage benefits to uh, same-sex couples. And you hear people like, you know, my colleague Maggie Gallagher, who I like very much, but talking about, well, this is, we're just going to lose the institution of marriage. And where have you been since the 1960s? <laughs> uh, I mean, regardless of how you feel about it, and I'm very much a traditionalist on my, my views on marriage. Um, I think we kind of lost that one. You know, we lost that back in the days of no-fault divorce and, and all the rest of the stuff that came after it. I take a very uh, contract-oriented view toward marriage. I think people should be able to enter into whatever sort of contracts they like, including ones that are really binding. The argument and the deal I often take to my, my fellow Shulster conservatives is this. We can have a, um, we can have a you know, sort of voluntary contract rights-based regime, or we can have something in which the government defines everything for us and Washington's going to decide what a marriage is, and Austin and Sacramento and Albany are going to decide what a marriage is. From a purely pragmatic point of view, if you're a social conservative looking at that, you've got to know you're going to lose. I mean, you've got to know you're going to lose. There's no way you're going to come out of the head. But what I think is actually interesting is uh, I would like social conservatives to put their opinions to a market test. So if we really believe, and we're right, that the sort of social arrangements we believe in, the sort of family arrangements we believe in, uh, will produce outcomes that are desirable um, in a measurable kind of way. They'll happier people, more prosperous people, more stable communities and things like that. Then that should show up in the data. You know, given people a choice, there should be a, uh, a way to look at that outcome. So one of the things I talked about, for instance, was uh, self-insurance. You know, self-insurance used to be a really big thing in the United States back in the 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, largely through what was called the lodge system. Uh, you know, people belonged to fraternities um, in really, really high numbers. Uh, a third of the country, the Masons and Elks at one point, uh, particularly two of ethnic minorities, uh, you know, immigrants from Europe and African-Americans who had their own sort of lodge systems. In Philadelphia in the late 19th, early 20th century, something like 90% of African-American households had some form of health insurance, almost always done through the fraternal system. And the way it worked was the lodges would pay X number of dollars per member per year to a doctor or a group of doctors in exchange for them being making, able to make house calls and patients being able to make doctor's visits. And it was kind of a good deal for everybody because young doctors just out of school didn't have to take 10 years to build a practice. And people who didn't have a lot of money could get some level of uh, health insurance. And there was a great deal of uh, self-policing involved in that too because if your insurance company is also your neighbors and the people you go to church with and people you work with, you've got really strong incentives not to abuse them, to, to malinger, uh, to commit fraud, various other things. And on their side, they have very strong incentives to be you know, kind of decent as well. Uh, of course, the American Medical Association helped kill that by, uh, by uh, upending the lodge system and you know, various government and regulatory initiatives helped to upend that as well. And now we have this weird system where somebody else pays, someone receives, someone produces, and nobody has you know, any sort of relationship with one another that makes any sense. But if you were going back and doing something like that, uh, if you were a social conservative, um, it would be a really good, I think, interesting opportunity to test out our social theories about whether they're actually true. You know, um, Coca-Cola 
uh, has a really good healthcare system for its employees. They're very happy with it. In fact, I remember reading something where they ranked their healthcare system, their health program, more highly than they did the management of their company. <laughs> Which maybe isn't a surprise if you ever worked anywhere. <laughs> but um, the reason, of course, they get really good outcomes is because there's 110,000 of them or something like that. Uh, so no one wants to be the guy to lose that account. You know, when you've got that big uh, a share, then you've got real incentives for people to produce for you. Well, you know, there are millions of Catholics in the country. Uh, there are millions of religious Jews. There's, I forget how many people, like 600,000 people belong to the Model Railroad Association. <laughs> something like that. But these groups can't self-insure the way people used to. Um, I think that would be one interesting experimental outcome. I mean, we may be totally wrong. I mean, you know, maybe that the uh, optimal social situation is something other than what traditionalist conservatives think. But um, even if we are right about that, that's not necessarily an argument for imposing that on people through politics. And, uh, and it's certainly the sort of proposition that you might like to, uh, to test. So I think maybe that answers Nick. Now I'm actually a much bigger Clash fan than a Led mm -hmm. Zeppelin fan. Okay. But you know, this was a totally cheap attempt to sell books by going with Zeppelin, something very popular rather yeah. than you know the misfits. Well, can I ask um among uh your regular readers or in early reviews and things like that from the right, I mean, what is the attitude towards uh things like, you know, making radical changes to Medicare and Social Security? Because, you know, these are real sticking points. In yeah, if, if if I could just add to that, we just went through an election campaign in which the centerpiece of Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan's objection to Obamacare was that they were cutting seven hundred and sixteen billion dollars from Medicare, to which the president responded and said, I would never cut that. And I said, Medicare is $42 trillion in debt. Well, I wish somebody would cut it. So. I'm going to clutch my purse. <laughs> uh, in terms of movement conservatives, uh, radical change to the entitlement program is actually fairly popular. Now, in terms of elected officials in the Republican Party, not so much. Uh, there are people who really want to do Social Security mm -hmm. reform because that's seen as the easy one. Right. Uh, because it, you can make it a lot more stable for 20, 25 years with some relatively modest changes can't really do that with Medicare, um, so nobody wants to talk about it because it's too hard a problem to solve. The other thing you hit on is, of course, defense spending. And that is a hard sell uh, for conservatives. Uh, there are conservatives who just, there is no amount of money that's too much to spend on defense. It's our version of education. Yeah. I mean, you go to someone on the left and say, we're spending X on education. What should we spend? Well, whatever X is, five times X. You know, we kind of feel uh, the same way about Defense. Um, I don't myself feel that way. I think we could probably cut the DOD budget in half uh, would be a good start, uh, maybe more than that. And that's both from a... Just is, a that, is that growing in popularity, even the, the, having that discussion? And, you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking about this the other day, um, among the Republican Party, and you're right, I mean, there's, a, you know, the Republican Party and the conservative movement or, you know, the right are not exactly the same any more than Democrats and the left are, but at least among Republicans, and it's because of people like Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and Justin Amash and a, a number of others, that the Republicans are actually involved in a really robust and interesting debate. And I was just talking with somebody who said they were doing polling where they asked people to say, who are the young leaders of the Republican Party? And people would list these people off and throw in Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and uh, you know, Nikki Haley and whatnot. And then they say, who are the young leaders of the Democrats? And it's crickets. You know, Hillary Clinton 
is the young, youngest Democrat who anybody can name, and she's, I don't know, six or 700 years old at this point. <laughs> uh, and I don't say that as an ageist, I'm just saying she's getting up there. And um, so at least the Republicans are debating this type of stuff. But I mean, is there a sense that, you know, these heritage proposals, oh, we always, 4% for peace. I mean, it's like Ben and Jerry, or I guess they're 4% for war. Ben and Jerry's was 1% for peace, but it's like, I mean, is that popular? War is more expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because it includes peace. Right. You know, there are people, uh, we are having this debate on the right right now. Uh, Rand Paul probably being the most uh, prominent spokesman for a more reasonable uh, defense and foreign policy. But you even have people like, you know, people like Ted Cruz, who, uh, you know, he's not, he's not as far out there as, say, Rand Paul is, but he's also not where George W. Bush and right. Paul Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz were. Um, I think there are at least a few of us who uh, think that maybe 08 was the election to lose, uh, simply because a President McCain, while he probably wouldn't have been as bad on things like health care and probably would have appointed some better judges from our point of view. Uh, Iran, you know, uh, is there a place we wouldn't be at war? Um, it might be a bit much. So I think there's an argument to be made I and mean, there's some evangelizing there to do, I think, for conservatives, if not on a, you know, a moral basis, which, uh, you know, it's funny for a, uh, you know, conservative Catholic guy to be saying this, but one of the points I try to make in the book is that I, I really just want to drop moral and ethical and metaphysical arguments for the most part. Uh, not that I don't think they're important. I think they're very important. In fact, I think they're fundamentally important. But uh, just it's impossible to change people's mind on the subject. You know, we've been having uh, ethical debate about the role of government for, you know, a thousand years or more. We're not changing a lot of minds. But there are some really good, you know, consequentialist and, and, and pragmatic arguments to make on that front. And I think we can take those arguments to some people on the right, saying, well, okay, maybe we do need to spend X, Y, and Z on the military. Maybe every now and then, you know, there's a particular situation that comes up that we want to be prepared for. And maybe, you know, belt and suspenders prepared for. Hmm. Uh, I can see that argument. But do we really, what was in it for us in Iraq in retrospect? Hmm. What's in it for us in Libya? Uh, we're... We've got troops in Africa right now, which always just confuses me. We've got these people in the Congo. It's like we're Belgium all of a sudden. You know, it's, we, when you're in the Congo, that's, that's the end for you. You know, that's, yeah. that's a bad sign for your country. Yeah. Uh, nothing good. Belgium ever. is a European problem. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's an argument that has to be continued to be made and on all fronts, whether it's actually in the national interest, whether it's economically smart. And the thing I think people forget, and I'll close with this, is the issue of opportunity cost on that, which is there, you know, there are some things we want government to be doing. There are things we want to do with that capital. And even when, you, even when you're dropping a bomb on someone for a really good reason, still from a capital point of view, that's a net loss. You know, I mean, that's a million-dollar piece of equipment that you only get to use once. And its only product is, you know, dead Arabs. Yeah. And, and uh, the occasional American, it seems. Four of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a whole that we know about debate, and uh, one that I'll actually be having with someone later today. All right, let's get you folks involved in this. We've got time for a few questions, so uh, why don't we go ahead? Uh, when you stand up, wait for the microphone to reach you, then uh, identify yourself, and please ask a question. Don't make a speech. Uh, I will cut you off on that. All right, sure. Go ahead, right there, in the middle. 
It's a really short speech. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, this is Luca Gattoni-Celli with The American Spectator. And Kevin, I'm a huge fan. I really like the writing you've done about healthcare and prices and how those two things don't really belong in the same sentence um, at this point. My question is, and this is going to sound a little conspiratorial, but um, you're very optimistic that when the end does come, that it is going to be awesome and that we're going to be able to step in as libertarians and you know, make some beautiful new thing that's voluntary and solves all these problems. And I'm like fully on board with that ideal. Don't get me wrong. It's a huge question I think about a lot. But I mean, the history of events like this, where all the fundamental institutions in society break down, that tends to predate um, totalitarianism. I mean, it's not like society collapses and then all of a sudden everyone is like really, really free. It usually goes in the opposite direction. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I would challenge the premises of your, your question, which is that I don't think that the state really represents the fundamental institutions of our society. Uh, they don't make anything useful. Um, they do some useful things. I'm not saying that law enforcement is good for nothing or that courts are good for nothing. And if you've ever been in a place that has bad law or unreliable courts, or police that are worse than our police are. Um, you see the value of that, certainly. But the things that really make you know, modern 21st century life what it is are independent of the state. So I'm not expecting you know, a total collapse of government or anything like that, although I'm expecting a retreat. And I'm also not saying that I don't you know, have some ammunition boxed up just in case. <laughs> Uh, you know, and some maps of walking trails in northern Maine in case, you know, we've got to go away for a while, although I don't, don't expect to have to use this. Um, what we're really talking about is things here like, uh, are we going to have monopoly schools at the local level? Are we going to have Social Security? Are we going to have Medicare? Those are the things that are going to go away, I think. And uh, cowboy poetry festivals funded by federal government. And as much fun as those things are, I mean, they really don't add up to, you know, squat, as everyone knows, in terms of the budget. All the non-defense discretionary spending is, what, around 19% now of the budget, something like that. Is it down to 17? You can't keep up with the news, I tell you. It moves too quickly. So, um, yeah, if, if I thought we were going sort of, you know, a Somalia route with the actual, you know, collapse of law and order and society and all that sort of stuff, I'd be, you know, getting my plimsur teacher self Swiss German thing and looking for apartments in Zurich. But I don't think that that's really very likely where we're going because we aren't as dependent on the welfare state as people would think we are and certainly not as dependent on government as Washington would like us to think we are. Um, a lot of this stuff could just poof, go away the day after tomorrow and life would go on just fine. Uh, if it goes away in sort of a slow and controlled fashion, it'll be that much less disruptive. And I think that there's a really good chance that we can still make that happen. It's not a 100% chance though, I'd like to emphasize. I mean, Congress and the permanent bureaucracies are certainly capable of making this problem bad and disruptive and, uh, and causing a great deal of social disorder if they choose to go that direction. Uh, Alden Abbott speaking on uh, my own behalf. I mean, picking up on the last question, isn't there a risk that uh, 
for instance, let's say Obamacare collapses, you might move to a single-payer system. Isn't there a risk that there may be economic uh, dis- disruptions? If you have low-information voters and statist officials, they might say, well, this means we have to start confisc- taking over major industries, have the state more and more involved, not just crony capitalism, but, but move closer to socialism. Isn't that a, how do you deal with that real risk? Yeah, I think it's a risk. I don't think it's that larger risk, actually. Um, so the people can vote for members of Congress who then vote to go borrow money and try to keep doing things the way we're doing it. But at some point, they, they hit economic reality, which is that people don't want to lend them money anymore, at least not at 1.1% or 1.2% or wherever we are. So we have these you know, debates every six months about the statutory debt ceiling and all that, but there's a real debt ceiling too. I mean, there's, there's a legal debt ceiling, which doesn't really matter, and an economic debt ceiling, which does. And eventually you run up against it. So people can vote for keeping things the way they are, or they can vote for doing X, Y, and Z. But once the assets and resources aren't there, they're just not there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the people of Greece would like to vote for something other than what they're going to get over the next few years in Cyprus and Argentina and various other places as well. But they're not going to... Uh, they're not going to get it because it's not there. You know, I'd also add, uh, in an interesting way or in a complementary way to that process, many of the technologies and the kind of new social organizations that uh, Kevin talks about in his book, um, the, you know, they empower a different type of political response. And I think that if you, you know, let's say the Obamacare exchanges, which, you know, I, what it's their own people are calling them train wrecks and, you know, uh, Zepp, you know uh, uh, Hindenburgs and all this type of stuff. When those fail, it's not going to be simple for the government to, they might try to say, okay, now we have to go to a single payer system. But the same kind of ad hoc, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, temporary coalitions of a broad group of people can come together and organize to put down uh, legislation. I think we saw that with the Stop Online Piracy Act of a year and a half ago or so in PIPA, things like that. You see odd coalitions that come together for very specific purposes for very short periods of time in places uh, like California and places like uh, Colorado and Washington in terms of medical marijuana or uh, you know other types of things. And the technology that has made our lives better also has allowed that kind of action to happen in a way that it, it couldn't really 20 years ago even. Yeah, one thing we haven't really got into too much, if I could just add to that, is that um, partly it's technology, partly it's changing nature of how people work, for whom they work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the emergence of things like currency substitutes, uh, the emergence of uh, more alternatives for truly private and secure banking and things like that. 25 years from now, um, I have my doubts about whether the government is going to be able to really do a very good job of collecting taxes much less trying to manage the healthcare system. I think that uh, the balance of power has definitely uh, shifted in an important way and it's not gonna go back. You know, we've spent 20 years talking about gun control and what we should do, should we do this, should we do that? And then there's a guy with a 3D printer and it's, it's not what should you do, it's what can you do? Hmm. Do you really think you can regulate this? Pass all the laws you want, you're not gonna stop us. And uh, I think that's, going to be an important political factor moving forward. Kevin, let me, let me ask you this. <clears throat> so much of your argument here is, sort of, is based on this idea that that which cannot go on forever eventually stops. Right. And uh, that we have a, a debt problem that eventually is going to force action on this. 
The counter-argument to that is Paul Krugman, who essentially suggests that, look, we don't have a debt problem. We can spend money sort of infinitely. And in fact, the real problem is the fact that we're not spending enough and that the whole crisis in Europe is caused by this harsh austerity where somehow they've slashed spending. It's almost impossible to find any actual spending cuts, but assume that they've slashed spending. And that's what's causing the problem. Uh, how do you respond to that? that? That there just really is no financial or debt problem. Yeah. Well, that's a theory. <laughs> and uh, I'm willing to see that theory tested. You know, uh, if I can add to that, though, too, I mean, you're, you're right, obviously, that, you know, there has been it, it, austerity is uh, most uh, quickly defined as a specific attempt or an explicit attempt to reduce the debt to GDP ratio. There have been attempts to do that in Europe, but they are fundamentally and, and overwhelmingly are done through tax increases. Nine, not through, $9 in tax increases yeah. for every dollar. So, I mean, they're not cutting spending. They're not savagely cutting spending, but they are cutting kind of disposable income. In the United States, it's kind of fascinating because it's clear Obama wants to spend more money. I mean, he just put out a budget plan that would, what, increase spending by uh, uh, $2 trillion or something over a 10-year period um, and, and would increase spending for next year quite a bit. Under Obama, when you adjust for inflation, spending has been flat and going down since his first year where he got everything he wanted. So even, and and let's, we know Republicans want to spend money when they can or if they can direct it, and they haven't been able to increase spending. So we are, regardless of Krugman, we are in a place where kind of spending has, has maxed out, you know, at least temporarily. Over there. Hi, I'm uh, Christopher Neubauer from the Urban Libertarian, which is uh, based in New York. Uh, my question is, um, a lot of the sort of zeitgeist around this in the media is predicated on the fear of what will happen now if we act to, you know, the beneficiaries. Um, and, you know, what we as libertarians are talking about is what's going to happen, you know, 20 years down the line. So that argument of fear resonates more in the now than in the future. So what do you think we can do to sort of highlight the benefits of the now of acting as opposed to talking about what's negative in the future? Yeah. Well, the downside of that is that there, there aren't a whole lot of benefits of acting now. Um, we just have a problem that's baked into the cake and it's got to be sorted out, but it's not going to be very much fun for anybody. Um, politically, there's not a lot of traction to be gained from well, we're going to take stuff away from you that you're expecting to have. Um, economically, there are going to be some real downsides to that as well, you know, as people have made plans for their lives based on faulty assumptions about what their Social Security and Medicare and other sorts of benefits were going to look like. I mean, it's, it's not going to be a fun unwinding in any way. One of the things that I think that we should um, try to do, though, is emphasize uh, the things that we want to put in place of these things. Uh, whether that has to do with well-organized voluntary wealth transfers for dealing with uh, certain kinds of poverty problems, problems related to disabilities, things like that, uh, certain kinds of policies relating to uh, taking people out of the traditional education system, uh, allowing people to uh, set up self-insurance cooperatives and other sorts of uh, health care alternatives. It's not like we don't have any good ideas, and it's not like we don't have things that we could start doing right now that would produce... Uh, real social benefits, and not just economic benefits, but actually making people's lives better in meaningful ways. Um, but as for the, uh, you know, the first part of that, that equation, just how do we undo this horrible thing that the federal government, the state governments, and the city governments, and the counties, and the school boards, and the special bridge district, and every other 
political entity you can think of have done. Uh, it's just not. There's just not going to be any fun thing for doing that. I, I uh, would like to add to that. I, I, I mean, I think it's a really uh, difficult question to answer. But, you know, the first thing that we need to do, especially, you know, defense is not hard to cut. And historically, defense spending gets cut a lot. I mean, it got cut a lot after World War II, got cut after Korea, after Vietnam, after uh, the Cold War ended. That can happen, and there's not a lot of dislocation. I mean, a couple of contractors get thrown out of work for a while, but, it, you know, things come back. With the other major players and drivers of uh, government debt, uh, you know, Medicare and Social Security, we need to start talking realistically about what position seniors are in. Seniors are not poor. We, you know, these are programs that were designed explicitly or went online, Social Security, during the Depression. Medicare was explicitly talked about as the final act of the New Deal by people like Harry Truman and uh, LBJ. And, you know, Old people are not poor people, and we need to sever that kind of mental connection and start talking about the reality. And uh, to be honest, you look like you're uh, under 60. Uh, you know, you got to build up some generational warfare. Your parents spent a lot of time guilting you into certain behaviors. It's time for younger people and wealthy seniors who know that they don't have a right to their children's future, which is what they're doing through entitlement programs. You know, you got to, you know, you got to step up, mom and dad, and throttle back. <laughs> I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they're wonderful people, and they raised a wonderful child. But I'm just saying, you know, we, we need to start having this conversation. And the other thing that I'll just add, I'll throw out, uh, you know, Reason uh, does a quarterly poll, and we just had a, a – it's up online at Reason.com, and uh, we did a bunch of questions about Social Security. One of the things that's fascinating is that most of us in this room understand, and I think I understand it, although I'm willing – I like Kevin, I was an English major, so I'm not certain about this – you know, we understand that uh, Social Security is a form of Ponzi scheme. And as uh, Kevin points out aptly in his book, you know, Ponzi schemes, at least Ponzi schemes are voluntary, uh, whereas Social Security is not. So it's even worse than a Ponzi scheme. Uh, but most people in America don't yet, especially most young people. And in this reason, RuPaul, in its latest iteration, we found that out. You know, okay, most people think it's a, a retirement account. But then when you explain to them, what it actually is, and then you ask them, what are your, you know, what do you think about this option or that option? There's a huge appetite, a majority appetite for reforming and addressing these. So there's still a lot of education on the facts of this kind of horrible, horrible program uh, that needs to get out. We're standing right between uh, you guys and food, so I'm going to take one last question. We're going to take a short question and a short answer, and uh, then we can go, go eat. Uh, hi, my name is Matt. I'm with IHS. Uh, something that uh, Nick Gillespie said, it seems to be a maxing out of the spending. Now, uh, something that we do remember from our public choice books is when we tend to max out spending, the, uh, I guess you'd say the urge to legislate appears in other ways, sometimes in regulation. So when you hit a ceiling of spending and taxing, you also then get overflow into regulation. I was wondering if there is going to be an end, do you also see a similar end in a regulatory state or do you think that, uh, well, we know from the Middle Ages, you don't have to be very rich in order to control people's lives? Well, both of you take this as a chance for, oh. for the last statement. I, well, they're hungry. I'll quickly uh, give it over to Kevin. But, yeah, you're, I mean, that you, you do uh, shed a light on why we've had so much regulation going through, starting under Bush, uh, you know, but also through this. I mean, we've, we're, if we're tapped out on spending, the regulation is coming. But as Kevin was pointing out, the 3D printer the, of the gun – the 3D printing of the gun is great, both because of what it says about guns, but more importantly, it's, it's over. It's, it, it's, 
it's not the end, but it is over for the traditional power relationship between governments and the governed. Uh, and in a broad way, there will be more regulations and more ways to escape more regulation, I think. Evan, you get the last word. Well, I would just answer that by saying that the uh, constraints on resources that limit what government can do for us also limit what government can do to us. Uh, it takes money to regulate. It takes money to police people. And it's gone. And so I think that uh, it's not yet safe to start just ignoring uh, the government. We have to keep an eye on it still and uh, kick it in the shins when we get a chance. But um, I would not be at all surprised if 30 years hence, I mean, we're still going to have corruption. We're still going to have inefficiency. We're still going to have abuses. But if you've got a government that's yay big versus a government that's yay big, those things matter a lot less. I um, mean, you know, if we had a federal government that accounted for 1% or 2% of GDP, I'd just be a full-time theater critic. <laughs> I wouldn't bother about them. But um, they are where they are, so we have to deal with them.